Hi Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I came across an article on the BBC News website the other week by a digital journalist, writer and sub-editor called Sarah Lee. Sarah works for BBC London but was writing about her personal experience of having stage 3 malignant melanoma in January 2022, which is the most serious form of skin cancer. Sarah had developed a pea-sized black mole on the top of her scalp and after five months and three different doctors failing to recognise its risk, Sarah was finally diagnosed by a second dermatologist who urgently ordered the surgical removal of the moles which had now grown significantly in size. It was then a race against time to begin treatment and she underwent surgery to remove 24 lymph nodes. Sarah was not an avid sunbed user, nor did she skimp on the Factor 50 sun cream. So in this episode, we discuss her journey into journalism, social class in the industry, competition in the industry, and why shouting about her work on social media doesn't come naturally to her, but it is now a quality that seems ever more important in getting ahead as a journalist. For Sarah's mental health, we discussed that scary period of her life having melanoma and her relief at finally getting diagnosed. We talk about the mental toll that surgery had on her and how she feels now she's come out of that period and how she was treated by medical professionals. We also discuss a highly traumatic event which happened to one of Sarah's family members when they were sexually abused after a night out. Sarah had to sit through two weeks of court proceedings and she consequently found attending court as a court reporter in her professional life extremely triggering after that trial concluded. So this is how my check-in with Sarah Lee went. Sarah, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you at such short notice. We only connected last week. So this has been a whirlwind pod record date put in place. I saw your article on the BBC News website and your experience of melanoma. And I was very keen to get you on to educate my listeners as well as I think myself, to be honest. So first off, how are you? I'm doing good, actually. I'm currently sat in my childhood bedroom, which is a, which is a first, I think, for this. Single bed and all. God, it reminds me of COVID times. Yep, my bedroom door shuts like I was when I was a teenager. So my parents will be listening eagerly at the door. I think. <laughs> so yeah, I, this is this is a first. <laughs> okay, excellent. The BBC article you wrote about contains some really eye-opening things. Like I said, that I just had no idea about, to be honest, Sarah. So I think this pod will be very educational for me, very educational for my listeners. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Before we dive into the article you wrote, you're a journalist, you're sub-editor in your own right. So let's discuss this wider journey first. Tell me why you became inspired to be a journalist, where your love for perhaps writing or storytelling or producing started, and the journey to where you are today. Oh, big question. I've always been, I'm very strange in saying this, but I loved doing exams. <laughs> And writing. I was that person in the exam hall that put their hand up for another book to oh, write no. in because I just kept going and going and going. I was that person, okay? Yeah, please no hate <laughs> for that. So I think my love of writing started, I suppose, from there. I have a photographic memory, so I can literally recite things you were built for exams. very easily. I'm the perfect candidate for an exam and I absolutely loved it. So sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I took those remembering skills of mine, my memory skills, and I did history at Cardiff Uni. And I don't think I even thought about being a journalist or even really knew what a journalist was or what the job completely entailed up until probably about my third year of uni, where you're in a scramble to get any kind of job. I applied for everything under the sun. So all your grad schemes, even things in sales. I think I even applied for like the Lidl grad scheme 
just out of complete desperation until I just sort of hated going to these assessment centres and talking this spiel about how much I loved sales when I was just completely lying to everybody and myself. And I think I just took a step back one day and said, why am I putting myself through this? I'm not getting these jobs because they can tell I'm really not interested. And I just had a thought about what I actually liked doing, which was writing, reading and talking to people. I'm so nosy. It's unbelievable. And yeah, I just kind of thought I should be, I probably should be a journalist. So I applied for a job in Milton Keynes because... It was the only job that would part fund or even help me with getting an NCTJ because a lot of newspapers, you have to have an NCTJ before working there. So it's sort of a catch 22 type of thing. And so, yeah, I packed my bags and I headed off to Milton Keynes of all places in the world. And wow, what a place that is. (laughs) (laughs) I did learn quite a lot of skills by doing that and seeing a place without being local seeing it with fresh eyes one thing that I actually now looking back that I think really worked in my favor being someone who doesn't know much about an area you do see it in a different light and I was able to give very different ideas where some people from the area would think that it was known to everybody in the area or it was you know everybody knows that that's not a story Um, I was able to sort of turn that around in my favour so after that I decided actually I wanted to be in broadcast journalism I've always loved the BBC it's always been a dream of mine I did maybe consider working in documentaries at some point given my history degree etc but um yeah I so a young 20 year old me applied for a job in BBC Berkshire Oh, I've gone way too forward now. I forgot that I actually did a two-week work experience at BBC Three Counties Radio in Dunstable. Again, another place which is uh, not well heard of, really, not for for someone like me from Wales. And there I learned, you know, how to put a radio show together, how to talk to a different audience through the sound waves, etc., rather than just print. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. I really loved that. And I and it confirmed to me that I definitely wanted to work for the BBC. And so then I applied for a job at BBC Berkshire for their online team, which I got. And yeah, I packed my bags again, moved to the lovely town of Reading. And it yeah, it was the best thing I ever did, I think, for myself doing that. It was fantastic, actually, working there. And A year after that, I applied for a BBC London job. (laughs) Again, here's another move. And I didn't expect to get it at all. It was because I was on a maternity contract that I just thought I should probably get something in the bag in case they decide to terminate me after that. But I went for it thinking I would never, ever get it. And I did. And I've been there ever since. Mm. Before we talk about BBC London in more detail, you said that prior to landing that role in the Milton Keynes news outlet, part of the decision, not all of it, I should say, was driven by the relationship you were in at the time and you were sort of having to find a place where you could work that was in relation to your partner. So after that relationship ended, did going to these new places such as Berkshire, such as BBC London, did that give you a greater sense of, I would say, independence or perhaps ownership over your life? Oh, absolutely. It was the first thing I ever did for myself, I think, moving to Reading, the first ever thing that I did without any other sort of circumstances or third party reasons as to why I was moving other than for me and for my career and that's what I mean when I say it was the best thing I ever done because I gained a huge new set of friends that weren't connected to anyone else other than myself you know I had to put in a lot of work to make those friends I was completely independent in the sense that I was sort of living on my own and every choice I made was for myself rather than, you know, for my boyfriend or moving with my boyfriend. And I think that at a young age of 20, at the time, I was, I would follow boys wherever they went, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and, and it was the first time I didn't do it. A so lot of boys do that with girls, really to be fair, mate. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's true. I want to talk about BBC London now, because 
you've had to move several times and then moved again to London. So you've already lived in quite a few different places. You've had that sense of independence and ownership over your life for your career already. So did moving to London feel like the biggest step out of your comfort zone so far at that point? Oh my God, yes. It was the biggest decision to make, even though it was an easy decision career-wise, to pack up and move again when I've already, I'd already kind of settled and I was happy and I'd made friends. And it came at a time where I wasn't really ready to move, but I did it anyway because who was going to pass up a job in BBC London? But there were problems that came with it. I was stressed about the rent, the cost of living. I said to you that I even put a pretz sandwich on my credit card. It was that bad at one point. It was really bad, you know, going up to the till with my tuna baguette going, oh, I have to, I'm going to have to pay this back next month. Ridiculous. But that's the reality of what it was, to be honest. So, yeah, it was tough going. And, yeah, I think I accumulated quite a bit of debt because moving to London, I was already in rent in one place, so it overlapped. I think a lot of renters can sympathise with that. That's what happens. So, yeah, and moving to this big city, I'm, I'm from Barry Island. You know, it's a small town, but I did grow up near Cardiff, so I'm used to city life. But... I think London's a bit a bit different to Cardiff when it comes to, the to diff, city yeah. life. So, yes. When it comes to the issues in the industry you wanted to talk about, Sarah, the first one you wanted to talk about is competition and social media. And I've spoken with many journalists about comparison culture in journalism and how that often manifests and how it works. So you admit that self-promotion doesn't come naturally to you. So when you see others doing it, how does that affect you? And just tell me a little bit about this issue through a mental health lens. Yeah, I feel a lot of journalists these days, specifically maybe the younger generation, and I'm 29, so I still see myself as quite young. <laughs> just about, I'm the same age as you, so yeah. <laughs> just about. A lot of younger people really scream and shout about the work that they do on social media, which is not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. And yes, you know, they've done great work. It's fabulous. But um, I'm not that sort of person at all. I see the work I do on a day-to-day basis as a job it's my job that's what I'm paid to do that's what I love doing I don't feel the need to shout about it every day and it's to me it's like a doctor tweeting oh I saved this person's life today or I removed this kidney today it's the equivalent to me to that and it just doesn't come naturally to me at all and when I do see people you know screaming and shouting about it I feel that they do better in their careers you know Mm -hmm. they're the people who are getting the blue ticks they're the people with the followers and it did sort of make me question one day like should I be doing this should I create a a work Instagram should I be doing reels about my work or posts about my work and it's just not something that I really want to do or feel comfortable doing Mm. really when I do do an important piece it's to highlight something important not to highlight the fact that I'm the one who's done it I feel a lot of journalists, there is a lot of egos and they talk about like, I have found this, I have done this. And to me, a story, if you're writing a story, it's about the person you're writing it about or the issue you're writing about, not about the fact that you have gone and done it. Do you Mm. know what I mean? No, 100%. (laughs) And I have a bit bit of an issue with it. But at the same time, these people are doing better. You know, they're, they're the ones who are getting a lot of promotions they're you know becoming part of big campaigns and yeah I feel job interviews these days the first thing they're going to do is go on your social media accounts if they see all these amazing things that you've done they're gonna be more impressed than someone who just doesn't shout about it who just you know all their twitter is is complaining to ASOS that my parcel hasn't been delivered which is the majority of my twitter (laughs) to be honest so yeah it it did create a lot of questions in my head whether or not I should be shouting about it to try and join forces and compete with these people who do do it I don't think I'm going to get a blue tick any time in my lifetime but that doesn't really bother me to be honest we're going to touch on the content of your article later in the pod pal but just on the reaction to the article itself given what we've just spoken about did that feedback or attention even though I imagine 99% of it was positive make you uncomfortable at all absolutely I was so 
almost cringing <laughs> about it, if I'm honest. And I shouldn't because this time I'm, I'm talking about a really important issue and I'm happy to scream and shout about that because it has another agenda. But I honestly did not think it would have travelled and gone as big as it did. I thought it would just be my little story that it would just go on the regional local index is what I work for. And I put it on Twitter and sort of my family and friends or people who know me will share it because they know me. But no, it went really big. And I was inundated on the day that it went out with calls to do loads of radio stations and TV appearances. And I'm obviously happy to do that. It's for a great cause. But yeah, considering what I just said, I was really taken aback and made me quite anxious, to be honest, I was because I'm not used to it. When we spoke off air, you were keen to talk about another issue, which is class in journalism or social class, I should say. And you are a working class journalist yourself. And when you were applying for jobs early in your career as a graduate, I'm right in saying that no one would take you without an NCTJ qualification. So just tell me a little bit about this. What do you think that says about the industry? And I guess it's general attitude towards class. Yeah, so I'm from a working class background. Most of my family work in the NHS. I'm from Barry Island. It's a very working class area. And the opportunities here aren't, you know, as big as there are in London. Yes, they have a BBC station at the time. It was, you know, it has a very new, brand new HQ now, which looks very snazzy. But at the time it was in this old rackety building. It wasn't in my eyeline to work in Wales because the opportunities are a, a lot less here. And in terms of getting into journalism itself, I feel a lot of people have it easier if they come from a wealthy background because they're able to pay for their way in and I know that sounds it sounds a bit nasty but um it's true because a lot of these courses the NCTJs that costs you know these courses that cost thousands of pounds I actually went after I finished my undergrad degree I actually went and had a interview to do the postgrad degree in journalism at Cardiff Uni which is a quite renowned course when you want to go into broadcast journalism and it was going to cost me £12,000 to do that and it would mean giving up my job that I already had to go and do it and moving back in with my parents that's what I would have had to have done and also taken out a, probably a bank loan to do it because my parents weren't going to fund me at all they, they you know then have the means to do that and it's similar now with sort of city in london it's a similar degree what i saw is that if you did this degree it was an open door into the industry easy peasy a lot of people in my work now have have done that course and they get the contacts through that or they know people in the industry i didn't know anyone in the industry at all maybe in the welsh speaking <laughs> department because i speak welsh You'll stick um, but together. i didn't want, I didn't want... <laughs> <laughs> yes they are desperate again anybody um, you're welsh you'll do welsh. <laughs> yes literally that i'm not even that's not even a joke <laughs> They will take anyone and anyone. If you speak Welsh, they absolutely love you. And I could probably walk into S4C or BBC Wales if I wanted to, but I didn't. But yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem because there was no way I was going to accept that offer to go and do a postgrad for 12 grand and not work and go back, go back living in my parents in this very spare room with my little single bed. I wasn't going to do it. I'm mm. sorry. So I had to work my way and I've worked ever since I was probably 15 years old so not working doesn't come naturally to me either I worked all the way through my uni course I even worked when I was doing my A-level I did four A-levels and I worked as well at the same time so I'm used to making money mm. and I didn't want to not make mm. money anymore so yeah there's a real issue with people who have money who are able to to just walk in whereas people from more disadvantaged backgrounds or people from working class backgrounds don't get that same opportunity. Mm. But I think even more so today, it's so important that people from all sorts of backgrounds do get into the BBC because a lot of times at my work in the office, we have people from more advantaged backgrounds who go and chat 
to people on council estates or people who've been involved in crime or whatever. And they, and I, they just don't have that same sense. And sometimes it's cringeworthy seeing them interview these people from working class backgrounds because I don't think they get it. And it's more important to get people who have grown up in that kind of background to understand these different communities, especially in London, because it's so different mm. everywhere. So yeah, I know there are schemes, there are trainee schemes, apprentice schemes, and they are really good, but they are also very competitive. Yeah. And I think they only choose maybe like seven out of thousands of candidates. I even went for for one of the jobs that I went to the journalism trainee scheme for ITV actually back in the day. And I got down to the final two for ITV Wales and I didn't get it because the person who did get it did the course in Cardiff that I didn't do. Oh, wow. So that says yeah. it all. I was equally as good. They literally say it was neck and neck and they were more favourable because they had done that course. Wow. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Let's reflect then on your journey, Sarah. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement on it so far? Ooh, do you know what? I've been thinking about this and I have a lot of proud moments. I've done a lot of high-end court cases and I think they would have been my proudest moments. But I think I'm going to have to say that putting out my own story was my proudest moment because... Because of how tough I found writing about myself, I never really sort of, I, I didn't really think how hard it was actually. And I sat down to write it. And usually a story like that about somebody else would probably take me a few hours to a day to, to write and to make nice and get all the pictures and stuff. But my own story took me a few weeks to perfect and to make sure I was covering all bases without being too emotional. And I still wanted to get my sense of humor in there and to get my lightheartedness in there. And yeah, the response it's got, especially from the melanoma community as well. And I'm on a Facebook group with other people who had melanoma and I've never met these people, but they've had my back since day one. And the response I got from them is what really made me proud of what I did because they are so keen to get the message out there and they don't have the outlet or they don't have the confidence even. And I really wanted to do them justice and to say thank you to all of them for helping me through my journey. And then as a final question before we move on, what has it taught you about yourself so far, do you think? Oh, I think it's taught me that everyone has a story to tell no matter how boring you may think someone is or how someone may think that they've had the most average life ever or a fairly normal life that is trauma-free or, you know, just very basic. Even those type of people, I feel everyone has a story and I'm such a chatterbox and I'm so nosy and I ask so many questions to everybody that I... I've managed to draw blood from a stone in some people. I'm like, that's an amazing story. And I think I've learned that about myself. I'm also very visual. I love colours. I love Instagram for that. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. It's probably very toxic, <laughs> but I, I love it. And I've learned that I have, I, well, especially in my office, they call me the Instagram correspondent because I've just got an eye for things that pop. And a lot of my stories, I do a lot of human interest stuff, but I also do a lot of fun, colourful entertainment style pieces, which I love doing. And I think the combination of them both basically describes me, really. Sometimes I can be quite serious. And on the other side, I'm very fun and bubbly and colourful. <laughs> We've talked all about Sarah, the journalist. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Sarah. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me back to early life in Barry Island in Wales, teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Sarah we meet here? Oh, do you know what? I saw this question that you wrote yesterday and I was sat with my mum and dad on the sofa and I asked them, and I asked them, when do you think I was aware of mental health? And my dad said, probably from an 
early age because my mum's actually a mental health nurse but she deals with people with dementia and alzheimer's and she has previously dealt with people with postnatal depression so my idea of mental health was a negative one it was people who were unwell mentally very unwell since a child i remember her coming home and she'd be she'd have cuts and bruises and you know she'd be screamed at because it's part of her job that's the patients that she deals with so when people used to say that they had mental health problems at an early age i associated it with you know extreme illness the question about who was i a teenager in barry island well like I said before, I was very studious and very academic. I loved school. I had a big group of girlfriends who I'm still friends with now. And yeah, I kept myself to myself. I wasn't this big extrovert. I was an extrovert to my closest friends, but um, in big groups, I was an introvert. I was very shy around boys. I didn't have a boyfriend at all. In terms of mental health, it's very hard because at the time, I don't think I was very aware of that course, that was such yeah. a thing. I didn't really understand it. I was very happy and I was busy constantly. I was the sort of person who was doing something all the time. School activities, going out with my friends, doing driving lessons, working. I worked in restaurants and bars and worked at a knockoff pizza, pizza hut, um, all these things. So I don't, don't think I really had time to stop. I was very focused on my studies and, and getting good grades, really. Mm. But yeah, I think I became aware of mental health, probably during my move to Reading, because all of my safety blankets had gone. My boyfriend at the time, we split up. I didn't have any friends or any family around me. And I actually developed chronic insomnia as a result of it. Yeah, it became a huge insomniac as soon as I started my job at BBC Berkshire, which was hard in itself because I was keen to impress. I knew I was on a contract. I didn't want to let it show that I was absolutely exhausted and tired and scared of about what was happening to me. I think that was the first time I ever sort of realised the importance of mental health and how it was affecting me, really. When it comes to your mental health journey as an adult, the first issue you wanted to discuss, Sarah, was something in your personal life which then came to affect your professional life. So in 2016, a family member of yours was sexually assaulted and was very close to being raped. Now, saying as much or as little as you want, just tell me about the events surrounding this, the court case which took place in 2017, and how and why it had such a negative impact on your mental health through secondary trauma, shall we say? Yeah, that was a completely unexpected turn of event that you think would never sort of happen to you. And whilst it didn't happen to me personally, I think I lived it more than my family member did. Saying it quite briefly, they were out at a club and got into a taxi late at night. They were intoxicated, very drunk to the point where they fell asleep in the taxi. And during that time, the taxi driver drove round with them for about four hours um, in the wrong direction. And they woke up with the man on top of them. This all ended up in a court case to which me and my family had to sit through for two weeks at a trial. But the family member that was uh, abused actually doesn't remember a lot of it because they were drunk at the time. So they didn't have to sit through the trial. They were in a witness box for one day and they went back to work. They didn't want to think about it anymore. They put it out of their mind. And for me and my family, it's something we lived and breathed every single day for two weeks. And it was brutal, to be honest. It's something I have never, you know, seen, you know, my dad, for example, or, and my mum upset about it. And that was probably worse for me. And having to relive the moments and seeing CCTV of it, things that, you know, seeing things that my family member hasn't actually seen and will never see. That started early on in my BBC career, that trial was, and 
soon after I became a court reporter, I went to court quite a lot. I covered a lot of murder, rape, sexual assault trials, quite high profile ones. And sitting in the old Bailey brought back all those horrible feelings and anger, which I didn't think it would. I'm very professional. I'm very good at compartmentalising. But sitting there, I remember just looking at the opening that a barrister gave me and reading through the gruesome details. It was really hard and something I didn't expect to, to have had to deal with. So that was a big thing that I had to overcome in dealing with at work because I was sent out all the time to court and I loved court reporting. I really liked doing it. And a lot of the time I was focused on writing my shorthand, taking in all the notes, really focused. But during my lunch, I'd sort of stop and think and look at my surroundings and I'd get chilled down my spine because I'd been there before and I'd, I'd been on the other end of things. I'd been in the gallery where people's families were looking down on me as a reporter and it was quite surreal really. Was the origin of this triggering or fear and anxiety that you yourself could be a victim of this crime and go through what your family member went through or was it just hearing consistently those really heavy details and gruesome details of trauma of other victims? I think it was a bit of both really. I mean as a woman you're terrified of things like that happen to you. It's like a horror movie. It's a nightmare that you think happens to other people and never happens to you and you're almost an outsider on these horrible things a lot of the time thankfully but when it happens to someone that you love I still have that anger in me when every time I talk about it or think about it. And it, it was a few years ago now, but sometimes, you know, when you're, I'm in the shower and you just think some random thoughts, it comes back in a flashback. And and it's always the same thing for me. It's me sitting in that courtroom and seeing the CCTV in front of me and seeing the defendant face to face and hearing him on the stand and lying. And God, it's makes me so angry even even now talking about it, it makes me so angry to hear some of the things that came out of his mouth and yeah I think almost I don't want to say I have it twice as bad as my family member but I think for me and my parents having to sit through that for two weeks we saw and heard things that I don't think we will ever forget and I spoke about it, this to my parents as well last night and my dad even said to me that he you know he still gets shudders occasionally and flashbacks of it and it and all he feels is just pure anger about it all. And I think it's something that I'm just going to have to live with and deal with. And in a way, I have I can empathise with others who have gone through this. And it isn't like that's an advantage for me speaking to um, families of other people in, in the court. As a journalist, I can really sympathise with what they're going through. And that can help. And it's just a horrible thing to go through and i and i i wouldn't wish it on anybody let's talk now about the main reason we're chatting today sarah which is the article you wrote on the bbc news website about your experience of melanoma so first of all tell the listeners what it is some stats about how many people it affects how and why you ended up contracting it and that drawn out process which eventually thank god led to your diagnosis So melanoma happens when your DNA mutates on your skin and that change can happen as a result of excess sun exposure and UV damage. So if you're in the sun quite a lot or if you use sunbeds, I think a lot of people don't know that when you go brown from tanning, that is skin damage. That is your skin reacting to the damage is just incurred by being in the sun for too long. And if you do this too much, then it will change your DNA and it will make your cells mutate and hello, you've got skin cancer, pretty much. Obviously, that is for the unlucky people. It doesn't happen to everybody. For me, it happened on my scalp. So somewhere that I wasn't using SPF, of course. I didn't wear hats. It's not something I really thought about. I look awful in hats. And I, and I think I'm not alone in saying that either. A lot of my friends, you know, they, they wear SPF and they cover up on their bodies, but they don't actually think about their heads. And 
my mole happened on my scalp and it was actually in July, in the summer of July last year, that I was outside of my garden and I took a photo of my scalp because I thought I needed highlights because I hadn't been to the hairdresser in ages because of COVID. And thank God I did take that picture and thank God for my vanity because that's when I noticed a small black bluish pea-sized lump in my hairline and I took a photo of it and I sent it to my mum straight away and I said this doesn't look right does it look what I've just noticed my scalp this, this is really weird and the first thing she said to me was oh gosh say you what the hell's that I, that hasn't been there before I, I know I know your head I combed nits out of it <laughs> when you were a child she knows every freckle on my body and she knew that wasn't right so I called my GP and the next day I was referred to see a dermatologist. And I think this is where it all kind of goes downhill for me. So a dermatologist saw me, he's a skin specialist. So someone who knows a lot about melanoma would have trained for it, would have seen all kinds of moles and skin conditions. And he took a look at my scalp and I explained to him that it was new, I'd never seen it before. And he said to me basically that it looked fine. I was too young to have skin cancer and that the hair on your head acts as a UV barrier. So it was very rare to get melanoma on the scalp. And I was soon to learn that all three of those statements were wrong because five months later it had grown and multiplied and spread all the way down to my skull and you'll be surprised actually of how much skin there is when you tap your head it feels like it's just bone there and a layer of skin on top you'll be so surprised my biopsy that they took from me i, I saw it in the pot it was so thick and chunky there is so much skin and muscle and god knows what else between your skin on your scalp and your brain and your skull so if you can imagine how thick that was and it spread all the way down to the bone by that point. So when I saw it growing and multiplying, I went back to the GP and still don't think my GP are seeing people in person, you know, and I had to take a photo of it again. And he took a look at the photo and diagnosed me through a photo. And he told me that it was fungus, despite me having been to a dermatologist. And yeah, I, at this point, I was getting very exasperated because nobody was taking me seriously. And I had about four black moles on my scalp. They were black. And I'm so fair and I'm so blonde and I'm so light that it's just, yeah, it, it just looked evil. You can see the photos online that I posted. And even people who aren't skin doctors will have a look at that. And it just looks like your typical melanoma. And luckily, I didn't take his word for it. And I pushed to see another doctor. By this time, it's December, you were nearing Christmas. And the doctor, lady doctor, and she's lovely. And thank God for her. She took one look at my scalp. And she just said to me, I'm really concerned about these spots on your head. Have you heard of malignant melanoma? And as soon as she said that, I just looked at her and I could tell in her eyes that she was really worried for me, really worried to the point, actually, that she asked me to come back on the same day to speak to a plastic surgeon. And, you know, with NHS waiting times and getting appointments, that is unheard of, to come back on the same day. She was like, can you come back in three hours to speak to our plastic surgeon? She was that worried that she wanted to get me in straight away, that she, she knew that that had to come off my head. Mm. And, yeah, a week later it was off. A week later and everything happened so quickly from then i had to wait for the results over christmas and new year so you can imagine that wasn't very pleasant but even at this point actually i was half of me was thinking oh it, surely it can't be i've seen i've been seen by four doctors surely it's not surely it just looks bad and it's not but deep down i kind of knew i kind of knew because it just looked so so wrong mm. And yeah, January the 7th, I remember, I had a call to say, and I'm surprised it happened over a phone, but I'm glad it did because I would have had, probably have had to wait for an appointment. And the nurse told me, yeah, it was stage three malignant melanoma. And stage three is quite, quite high. Stage four is the 
most that you can go to for people who don't know and yeah it was stage three it spread all the way down to my skull I had to have another operation to get rid of all the cells in my scalp so that was that I had to go under the knife again to make sure they got all the cancer cells from around my scalp so I had a very large scar on the top of my head I still have a little bald spot now. It was like someone took an ice cream scoop to my skull. It's like a crater and I've got a little tuft now growing back. It's finally growing, but that wasn't all either. It gets worse. I had to undergo MRI, CT scans, PET scans, and they discovered that the melanoma had actually spread to a lymph node in my neck, which means in oncology terms, it's a worse prognosis if it spreads from its original location to somewhere else in the body and I had to undergo a neck dissection which is a very invasive surgery. I was on the table for about eight hours to remove 24 lymph nodes and the surrounding tissues from the left side of my neck. I have a very large scar now that I'm putting bio oil on every day to try and <laughs> try and make that fade away nicely but um, at the time it was terrible. I, I lost um, the feeling in the left side of my face. My smile was all wonky. I still have numbness in my left ear. I still have pins and needles in my scalp. And I had to carry my own blood around in a drain for two weeks. That was probably the worst bit of the recovery, to be honest, was the drains because they got infected. And it was so painful having to carry around these drains that were hanging from my neck, basically. And I had to carry them around in a little bag um, if I wanted to go out walking. So yeah, and yeah, <laughs> oh, and it doesn't even end there. So this is all happening between the months of January to March. And by the end of March, they told me that they think they got it all. All the lymph nodes that came out were negative for melanoma apart from one, which is, well, it's not good, but it's better than than them all being positive. And because of that, I now have to take medication for 12 months, which have quite grueling side effects. I mean, the first month I was on them, I was so sick, I had to be put on an IV for dehydration. Yes, yeah, a really bad nausea, really bad fatigue to the point where showering is, I don't have enough energy to shower. So there was a lot of you know, watching Netflix between being sick at that point in my life. And yeah, I have to be monitored for five years now. I have scans every three months. So that's the worst bit. We call it the scanxiety, <laughs> me and my friends on Facebook. And it's just living between those three months, really, until I get an appointment letter. It's pretty much out of my mind. But as soon as that letter comes through the door to say that my scans are up, gosh my anxiety goes through the roof and I convince myself that every little lump and bump in my body is a recurrence that it's come back and that sense of relief you get when you're told that you know you're still clear gosh the amount of Prosecco I've, I've had just as any excuse to celebrate it's just such a lovely feeling to, to know that but yeah I've got until April and then I'll be off my meds but the mental anguish it will still continue I mean I used to love the sun so much and this is not saying that I was dangerous in the sun I wasn't at all I just loved summer and I loved going on holidays it was my highlight of my year and now I'm just shy away from it I'm anxious in the sun it's completely changed my relationship to it I'm looking forward to winter where I don't have to worry as much and yeah, and it's taken a huge toll on my family as well. And it's only now, I think, now that I'm sort of on the other side of things that we've sat back and think, actually, I've gone through quite a bit. Mm. You're obviously not a big sunbed user, as you say in the article, Sarah. You know, you grew up in Wales, which isn't renowned for belting sunshine and extreme <laughs> heat. You always used sun cream. So when you were diagnosed, given how serious, as I found out, melanoma is... What was your reaction to it? Did you view it at its worst as a death sentence? And also, like you said, with the taking the picture of your scalp and given the experience that you had with those doctors, do you think your anxiety saved your life? Yeah, I mean, 
just to clarify, I wasn't a Sunbed user at yeah. all. I, I, I think I, I think I went on it once as a teenager. So yeah, not a Sunbed user. Yes, I went out in the sun, but I always use SPF. So it came as a huge surprise to me that someone who was careful in the sun could get it. And I've actually learned since that some melanomas can happen in people who don't go in the sun at all, who are really shy from the sun. And it can even happen in your eye, in your nails, even in places the sun don't see, in your nostrils, for example. So I think a lot of people don't actually really know. And I think they truly think if you get skin cancer, you'll be absolutely fine and you'll just get a dodgy mole cut off and you can carry on with your life. And it's just so not true because if it's left untreated, it can spread to your vital organs, to your lungs, to your liver, to your brain. And once that happens, it's really hard to treat. Even if it is treated, it's very, very likely that it's going to come back. In terms of my anxiety saving my life, at the time when I was diagnosed, I put on a brave face and I say this because I mostly did it for my loved ones. So seeing my loved ones, seeing my parents and my boyfriend upset, upset me more than the diagnosis. I'd rather them not be upset than anything at all. And I remember, I think it was a few months really after I've had a few surgeries that I was on my own in my house and I just broke down. And it was the first time I'd ever really cried about it. I didn't really cry at all. Or my instinct was just like, right, let's get it sorted. I'm just like, go, go, go. What's next? What's next? And, it, and that gave me a sense of control. But once it all started to quiet down a little bit, I just remember, yeah, just breaking, completely breaking down about it. And I was terrified. And I still am terrified. I do still have moments of thinking, you know, if this does come back, I might not be as lucky or there's always a chance that I might be one of those unlucky people. And yeah, I'm just really thankful that I am the sort of person to get stuff done and my determination to push through and to get that fourth opinion really did save my life where other people may just take what the first doctor said on face value and never get it sorted ever again I think a lot of and I don't want to be sexist in this instance just from you know from my experience a lot of men you know do tend to poo poo mm. things and can't be bothered to go to the doctors and no, it takes right. their girlfriends <laughs> or they to, 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 to say you know nag them to get them checked like constantly uh, you know, my dad is was exactly like that, and even though my sister and my mum are both nurses, you can you can imagine the grief he gets whenever he's coughing. He's like, "Oh, what's that? You better get that checked." You know, we're very much like that in our household. We will we will not just take things. We will push and push and push until we get it sorted. But you know, some people might not be like that and not be as lucky, and that's what's worrying really. Because if you if you don't have that in you. If I wasn't like that, I, I'd be in a very different position right now, which is really scary. I want to read out a quote that you put at the end of the article. You say, having cancer at the age of 29 has been a terrifying surprise, but it has taught me to laugh harder, to live happier and to love bigger. So it sounds like you're on the one hand very cautious about some areas of life, rightfully so, but you also have a newfound desire to embrace the beauty of it. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been such a rubbish time. But on the other hand, I'm not glad it's happened to me. I wish it didn't happen to me. But I have come out the other end with a very new perspective on life. And I only tend to wor try not to worry about things. I will only worry about things, you know, now if it's sort of life and death. If I have a little inconvenience, for example, like, if you know you're in a traffic jam usually I would flip my lid and be so angry about being stuck stuck in a car and I'd get really frustrated but now I sort of step back and think you know things have been worse and things could be worse and yeah I think the message is just embrace life as it is and do things now don't wait I've done a lot of that I become quite stagnant and I think we all can get like that sometimes a bit lazy and I got used to just you know going to work and coming home and having tea and going to bed and doing the same thing but now I want to 
live a bit bigger and I want to go for that drink that you can't really be bothered to go to after work and book that holiday now if you can and yeah I've got a great new outlook on life because until it happens to you I don't think we realize how short life can be. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now Sarah so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the Sarah who was questioning her own judgment about the mole that was growing on her head or the Sarah who was about to go under the knife to remove all of those lymph nodes or perhaps the Sarah who was being triggered from reporting on those brutal criminal court cases what would you say to her knowing what you do now gosh I mean I don't regret anything that has happened well I suppose having cancer is, is something I, I wish I wouldn't didn't have. But in terms of how I dealt with things, this is another thing that cancer has taught me is also don't regret things because at the time that's how you felt and that's how you wanted to do things at the time. So I, I'm very much of that mentality that I don't tend to regret. But if I could tell myself that, well, if, I think it's a bit silly to be say that uh, uh, tell myself that everything was going to be okay because it it wasn't really the reality wasn't going to be okay. But I have been very resilient, I think, and I've been very strong. I've put a very brave face on things, and if I could tell myself that I would be strong enough one day to, you know, write an article about my experience and to be able to talk about it and to shed a light on the issue and to educate people. I'm so surprised that so many people really don't know the extent of melanoma, considering that it's probably one of the biggest cancers in the UK that you can have. Like So many people have it. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think I knew much about it before I was diagnosed either. So there's, there's no blame there on anyone. I think there probably should be a bigger awareness campaign about it. And I think it should be the same as you know, drinking and smoking. It should be in the same bracket because the amount of melanoma diagnoses and deaths and treatments are costing the NHS loads when it can be really preventable. You could ban sunbeds, for example. So yeah, if I could go back and tell myself that all of this experiences with cancer would end up making me having a better outlook on life and be able to live a lot bigger and spontaneously, then I would do that and to tell tell myself that so many people have my back a lot of people you know have come out the woodwork with this I've had people contacting me from years past people I went to uni with you know who still offer a helping hand who still care about me even though I haven't spoken to them in years and that's been a really nice aspect of it you know and some people have dropped off the earth like you know like flies you know some people don't really know how to deal with it and rather than just not deal with it and cut me off and if that's how they're going to deal with it I'd rather them not be in my life for example so it it has become a good way of showing me who cares about me yeah that's been a really good thing to learn in terms of me at the court cases uh, well I'm quite proud of how I dealt with it because I do remember actually talking to my mum about it afterwards and saying like oh I'm feeling a bit anxious about it and my boss she um I'm doing a good job at court reporting, but I, when I go there, I keep getting these flashbacks. And she just told me to tell my boss, basically, and just to tell her and just to be open about it. And and I did. And I did tell her and I went through it and she, you know, she had no idea. So and now she, she yeah, I don't get sent to things maybe like sexual abuse, court cases and writing about things like that because it she does know it's a little bit triggering for me despite the fact that you know I still want to go to court and write things and I don't want to be excluded because of that and I just think it's just being honest about I think your experiences I think a lot of people are not I don't want to say embarrassed but maybe embarrassed that they don't want to tell their bosses like sort of delicate vulnerable information because they don't want to be taken out of the opportunities or they don't get to succeed in any single way and I think I just think it's really important because I think everybody has something I think everyone has something that you know they're dealing with or they've dealt with or they've gone through and I just think we should be more open about things really
Our final topic of conversation, Sarah, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and lightning quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? At the moment, I'll be honest, I'm up and down, obviously, because of where I am at the moment in terms of my health journey. But most of the time, I'm quite positive. I pack my weekends full of loads of things, and I've come down to see my parents a lot more and my friends here. And so I've had a lovely weekend. Um, I went to the spa yesterday, so taking care of myself and my mum as well. And yeah, I think I'm at this at this moment, I'm good. Excellent. Um, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? So I mentioned earlier about how I battled with chronic insomnia. That's been a bane of my life for so long. Never actually, don't think I've told anyone other than my close friends. I've been on antidepressants for about six, seven years because of it. And it's not because I'm, I was depressed. It's actually to tackle my anxiety around sleep and yeah, it's really it's it's hard to describe to be honest because because I just I have a fear of not sleeping, and it's been like that since I was a child. I hated sleepovers. I hated not being in my own bed, and this has continued into my adult life. For example, if I go to hotels or I go on holiday, I find sleeping in the bed the first night really hard. I don't really I don't sleep in on the first night. I'm in a different bed. I won't sleep. And so a lot of doctors experimented with me to try and uh, find out why this was happening. And after a lot of uh, after a lot of trials with sort of sleeping pills and things, they didn't work. They decided to put me on citalopram. And since then, it has tackled my anxiety and I sleep absolutely fine now. There are occasions that I don't, but I can deal with it a lot better than I did. I used to have panic attacks if I didn't sleep. So yeah, that's the main one I live with, obviously on top of having to think about whether my cancer will come back. That's a heavy one as well. But at this point in time, I'm so happy I'm on citalopram and that my sleep is controlled because that on top of having cancer, etc., would not be a good mix, I don't think. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big moment at the time or something quite big and a burden had been lifted off your shoulders or something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? Yeah, I think I mentioned this earlier and and I think the first thing, the first conversation I had was with my mum. And it was because I wasn't sleeping and it and it had come to the point where it was really affecting me and I was really low and I, I was missing work because of it because I was just too tired. And I just could not understand why it was happening to me at all. I had no idea. I was like, I have, but at the point in time, I was happy and I don't think there was anything wrong with me at all. You know, in my personal life, I thought I was perfectly happy in a new job. But there was obviously some underlying issues going there that I was away from. Like looking back now, I could probably tell you why. And it was because I was away from my family and my friends and trying to create a life for myself on my own. And that just triggered something. I'm not sure. But um, it was with my mum. And it did feel like a big thing because it was the first time I felt mentally unwell. And yeah, to say that for those words sort of to come out of my mouth was scary because of how I had associated mental health quite negatively before because of my mum's job. It scared me to the fact that I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I thought to myself, you know, I'm not that sort of person. I'm not that sort of person to be mentally unwell. I'm, I've got a great job and I'm strong and I'm, you know, I've got loads of friends. Like, why is this happening to me? And yeah, it doesn't discriminate at all. You, you never know what's going to happen. And yeah, it felt like a big thing, but it was the start of me going to get it sorted by talking to my mum. So it was a big thing, but also a, a big relief off my shoulders. And outside of not wanting to sleep or the fear of not sleeping, should I say, what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? The sleep thing is still a big issue for me in terms of triggers. I remember once I wanted to track my sleep on one of these apps. And this was years after, you know, my issues started. So I was sleeping fine at that point. But as soon as I downloaded the app 
and I set it off to monitor my sleep. I couldn't sleep. And yeah, talking about it, well, it doesn't really trigger me because I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, but thinking about it and talking about it, I suppose, before I go to bed will trigger me. And even with the apps, downloading any sort of sleep monitoring things will trigger me. If I scare myself silly before I go on holiday about not sleeping in a different bed, that will trigger me. So it's, I've become a lot better at managing it now. If I don't sleep, I will literally just get out of bed and reset is what I call it myself. But yeah, it's still very much a part of me. I think it probably always will be. And then conversely, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and which ones that you've tried but haven't? talking a lot I think talking really helps and this can be in any situation whatsoever even you know with my boyfriend we've been together for five years and it just becomes so routine to the point you know in in lockdown I think everyone had their struggles and we just didn't really talk about how we were feeling about things and it put a distance between us a little bit that we didn't really realize until now and yeah I think talking about things really helps even if you have a little niggle about anything it's just better to get it off your chest I really talk openly about anything I'm very happy to a lot of people are not so open about their feelings I can understand that but I would really urge anyone to talk I think that's the best cure ever to be honest and secondly I would say having an escape and that can be anything. I mean, for me, it's reading, going for walks and watching a lot of Netflix. It's my favourite thing to do just to sort of, to not think about anything. It's just uh, indulging fiction. I love fiction. It's my favourite thing ever. So, yeah. Building on books then, what is the best book or as I call it, <laughs> mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I've ever read or listened to anything mental health related ever and that's almost surprising to me but at the same time I hate non-fiction and I'm so busy to the point where if I'm going to read it's going to be fiction it's going to be something I love and something completely like out of this world like sci-fi or historical fiction something that's not happening in today's society that really helps me and yeah, sorry, I can't endorse any great mental health authors. My best friend gave me The Power of mm-hmm. Now ages ago and is still sitting on my <laughs> shelf. I'm so sorry. Right. <laughs> it's just not, the, I'm just very, I'm not, I'm, I hate nonfiction and that's in the category for me. And I would say I'm a realist and I, I don't, I don't want to sound derogatory in any way. It helps some people. But when I read things like that, I'm kind of like, well, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. I'm it's not just, for you. I, I just yeah. Think yeah. It's not, it's not, just not for, for me. You. That's it's fine. not for me. If yeah. there was a mantra in life that defined your mental health, what would it be? Mantra to define my mental health. Um, I actually thought about this yesterday as well. And my mum was feeling off lyrics of songs, <laughs> so we won't go into that. <laughs> I would say it's not life or death. Don't worry about it. And I say this obviously because I have faced, I wouldn't say I've faced death, but a possibility of death. And that's the scariest thing that can happen. And, you know, if I have any work issues now or any sort of personal issues, for example, nothing, nothing is worse than what I've I've been through, to be honest. That feeling of, you know, going to the scans and everything, nothing is worse than that. And it actually doesn't matter really in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter I wasn't in hospital thinking about work or you know the amount of friends I've got or you know that club I didn't go to or that restaurant I didn't go to because whatever and little things like that really don't matter in life and yeah I just think if it's not life or death don't worry about it and as a final question what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think we need to normalise mental health and I think we've come a long way actually because 
thinking back about our conversation now and looking back at how I was as a teenager thinking that you know mental health meant you're crazy or something because like that I think a lot of people would have felt the same maybe at my age at that point in life because I don't think mental health campaigns or awareness was a thing then to be honest we didn't talk about it in schools at all actually think about I didn't have a counsellor or I don't really think, even think the word mental health came about in my school and I think a lot of people my age uh, or maybe older would say the same thing so talking about it in schools normalizing it I don't I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed to say that you know they're on antidepressants I mean there's a part of me that kind of is talking about that I don't think any of my colleagues know and that's obviously a problem in my why should I be embarrassed about that it's exactly the same as having any other injury I'm not embarrassed about talking about my cancer medication for example so why should I be embarrassed about talking about sepalopram and I think we're getting there with social media. I know a lot of people have, you know, post pictures of the tablets they're taking and things. In terms of people from disadvantaged backgrounds, yeah, I just think it should be talked about in schools and it's starting from the ground up. It's the same with melanoma that I was thinking about. If we don't talk about that in schools and sun safety in schools, then how do you expect people to grow up and know about it? And on that note, Sarah Lee, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. You are very welcome. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Sarah for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I'll put a link to where you can read Sarah's full article on the BBC News website in the show notes. I hope this pod makes all of you listeners never underestimate the power of the sun in heat waves we've had recently and to take proper care of yourselves and your skin. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe if you'd like to do that. Or you can go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Please also do buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four with Amir and Jack Lydon and Circuit. That is on Saturday, October the 15th. The link to buy the tickets is on our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.